Hello everyone, Jeff here. Thanks for listening to this episode. This is a long one, and it is full of spoilers, so I wanted to give you a couple timestamps in case you wanted to skip around a bit in the episode. Our review of Creeped Out starts at 14 minutes and 2 seconds, and runs up to our review of Bohemian Rhapsody at 55 minutes and 12 seconds. I've put those times in the show notes too. Hello everyone, and welcome to the 33rd episode of the Pop Culture Quorum Dale podcast. I'm Jeff Wright, one of the regular hosts around here, and I am joined, as per usual, by my buddy Jared Moore. Jared, how are you tonight, brother? I'm doing well, man. Doing well. I'm a little tired, but uh, I guess that's kind of par for the course on Sunday evening. Do you feel like preaching takes a disproportionate amount of energy to what you're doing physically? I think it does. Like you, I, I don't know why it does, but it does. And I don't know if it's the adrenaline or what it is. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I, I grew up on a farm. I know when we were kids, you worked at a uh, remanufacturing plant. I mean, it's not like we've never worked physically demanding jobs. Mm-hmm. But for some reason, preaching just takes it out of me. I don't know. I don't know why that is. Like Maybe adrenaline is the, the answer. Yeah, they tell you not to don't take Mondays off. I do anyways, but that's because you'll feel... What more more prone to depression or discouragement because you come off that adrenaline high at least twice on Sunday and um, mm. so yeah well I I just take every day off. <laughs> Jared, I think the best way for us to proceed through this episode is to kind of rearrange our normal format. So how about we lead off with? So sorry to interrupt. Okay, so you said um, like that, <laughs> stumble, stumble, stumble. We talked a little bit last week about how we think through foul language and violence and nudity uh, when it comes to our conscience in consuming some of this content that we're reviewing on the podcast. And you suggested that we spend a little time talking specifically about nudity. Nudity is kind of the big uh, bridge too far for us. If, if a film has nudity in it, we're not going to talk about it on an episode. So why don't you tell our listeners why it is we've come to those conclusions, how we got there, why we would recommend a certain approach to nudity for them as believers. Just take it and run with it. Um, <clears throat> nudity. So I had I had a initially thought when wrestling with pop culture and what what you're allowed to see and things like that. Um, I'd originally thought that well, any form of nudity would need to be rejected. You know that it's sin to see someone nude who is not your spouse. Um, but that was before I had children and had to think more through that. Um, and it was before. See, I didn't have a job where I saw any nude people. So think of like in the medical profession, nurses. Doctors. I mean, they see nude people all the time. Um, And so I just got to thinking about it, wrestling with it, and basically landed on um, seeing someone in a sexual situation um, is sin other than your spouse. And so concerning nudity, when it's permissible to uncover the the nakedness of um, your neighbor, it would be if it's if the purpose is to love God and your neighbor. Um, So I, I think in the medical profession, it is out of love for your neighbor and caring, taking care of your neighbor, um, you know, for their health, uh, children, changing their diapers. Uh, you think of diaper rashes and all that junk you got to do and, and trying to help them. Um, I, was, I would just think of that paste stuff that we used to put on them that's like toothpaste almost. Um, you know what I'm talking the about? The joys well, of you, parenting. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you're, you're probably still doing that, ain't you? Uh, actually, we are. We have all of our kids out of diapers. Yeah, we do too. Which is such a weird feeling. But anyway, I digress. It is. It is. Um, but And so, you know, concerning nudity, the question is, is this an act of love toward God and my neighbor? I mean, it's basically that, that criteria. <clears throat> and so in movies, 
um, we are not supposed to see someone look upon someone's nudity in a way that um, so if it's a concerning a a if it's not for to care for them, um, well then we shouldn't see it. So a woman who exposes herself or a man who exposes himself on a on a movie or a TV show, we do not have any marital rights towards that individual. Um, in other words, we don't have a marriage covenant with them, and um, so we don't have a one flesh right to their body. And I say right, I don't I don't mean that personhood is collapsed into the covenant. Um, I, I mean it, there's still obviously consent that needs to be in marital relations. But but all I'm saying is that just because someone on the screen or a director says this is okay, it does not mean that it is. Yeah. So we would assume that seeing another person's naked body is verboten, and that's the default setting. But yes. then uh, either professionally through mutual consent and the nature of the care being given or within the confines of a family, again, basically as a caregiver. And then lastly, with one spouse for the purposes of enjoyment. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. All those things. Um, But I was discussing this with my sister um, when I was wrestling with this a long time ago. And she said, I see nude people all the time because I'm a nurse. And so it it made me have to take a step back and and rethink it. Um, But I think, I mean, concerning ethics, if you can memorize those two greatest commandments, you know, Matthew, I think it's 22, 37 through 39, where Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. That's the first and great commandment. The second is like it to love your neighbor as yourself. And and if you can live life in light of those realities, now we're not talking about earning your salvation. We're just talking about an ethic concerning living a life that glorifies God in light of your relationship with Christ. In other words, if you're trusting in Christ, um, he's been punished for your sin and his righteousness has been credited to you and you're you're going to heaven based on his finished work alone. But now how should you live? And so those two greatest commandments form a guideline for us in every area. And so I'm just saying, let's apply that to how we view nudity. Yeah, fair point. Fair point. And so, again, guys, you're not going to hear uh, reviews from us about movies that have nudity. That's one of our ways to honor that commitment. Now, truth be told, if you're reading the blog, sometimes we will talk about a movie on there that has nudity on it or rather in it. Um, you know, that's one of those deals where we try to practice godly looking away or if, you know, if our spouse is watching it with us that they can, while we're looking away, they can say, hey, now it's safe to look back at the screen. So this isn't something that is a hard and fast rule. We think binds all consciences, but it is something we think is a good, uh, it's, a, it's a helpful practice to avoid seeing nudity that, that basically we're not authorized to see by virtue of our vocational callings. And uh, we would right. commend that practice to, to you as you pursue loving the Lord well and loving your neighbor well. Amen. All right. And since there wasn't a ton of news we wanted to get to this week, it's a good reason to bump. So sorry to interrupt. Up to the first slot on the podcast, we are going to move into now. What you watching? What you watching? What you watching? And Jared, what have you been watching this week, man? Um, I watched, uh, <clears throat> he's out there. Yeah, we've been looking forward to that one kind of off air for a while. Mm-hmm. Yvonne Strahowski, how do you say her name? I have no idea, man. I just mumble. I, I mean, no idea. The blonde girl, you know, yeah, I know I, that narrows it down. But I met her. I met her first, uh, and, and I guess this may scandalize some of our listeners. But she was on a season of Dexter. Uh, my wife and I enjoyed watching Dexter. There was plenty of opportunities to look away in that one. Um, but she she plays a love interest for this sociopathic killer, and uh, she did a good job. So anyway, I think she, I, I saw her on Chuck. Is where I oh, first yeah. saw her. Never watched that one, although that guy's playing my boy Captain. Well, he's playing Shazam in the upcoming Shazam movie. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, what do you think about he's out there? Um, it's worth seeing. I think that there's quite a bit of language in it, um, and there's a lot of violence, but um, it's worth seeing. It, it there are some 
uh, I mean, it's unique in some ways, but um, I don't know that I'll ever watch it again. But yeah, it doesn't sound but, like you were thrilled. Well, I, it was overhyped in my mind. I mean, they they yeah. did an amazing job on the trailer. Mm. So is uh, this one of these movies that the trailer gives away everything good in the movie? No, the trailer just gets you so intrigued, you know? I mean, mm-hmm. it's just, it's amazing how how, they, how it does that. But um, it's one of those where, I don't know, I don't know how you do that as a movie. You want people to watch it. We we watched it on YouTube. It's not supposed to be out the theater till 10 days from now, I think. Oh, yeah. And so somehow YouTube offered it, and and, they, and we watched it. We rented it for like five dollars. Well, I wish I wish studios did more of that. Uh, I imagine they would get better returns on some of these movies that they don't expect to do super well at the box office if they yeah. give you a chance to just watch it at home instead of you know trying to get people to go to the theater to see it. Yeah, yeah, but I mean it, it's it's worth seeing. I was just disappointed though because of the hype in my head. Yeah, kind of like Hereditary. That's how it was with it too. Mm, yeah. Well, my wife decided she wanted to watch The Haunting of Hill House. And oh so wow! I went back through that series with her, and uh, it was good, man. It was good on the rewatch. It was fun to kind of look for details in a way I wasn't able to the first time I was going through it. Um, I, I'll tell you this though, and, and spoiler alert: if you haven't listened to our review of the show in our in our archives, or if you hadn't heard anybody talking about it, you might want to skip ahead a little bit. But uh, I, I I'm increasingly dissatisfied with the ending of that series. Really? Yeah. You know, you've got this weird deal where you know Liv goes crazy and kills that little girl. And then she's the one who who um, pushes her daughter basically off the cliff. I mean, she doesn't literally push her, but when when Nail hangs herself, her mom's right there, you know, tricking her, mm-hmm. showing her that yeah. locket, and it turns out to be the news she dies by. Um, then when she, you know, when you get back to the house and all the kids are in the red room, Dad and her ghost are outside. Dad has to agree to die to get her to let them out of the red room, and. Uh, then by the end of the the show, like we're supposed to be happy that this daughter that she helped kill and this husband that had to sacrifice his life to free his children are going to be with her in Hill House. But then also supposed to be happy that the kids who remain alive are enjoying, you know, a better life. It's just it seems like, I guess, in hindsight, that it, it looks like an attempt to have your cake and eat it, too. Now, Liv becomes an evil character, even though she's I think she's tricked by Hill House. Mm-hmm. She never has this time where she breaks and says, oh, my gosh, I can't believe I poisoned that little girl. Oh, my gosh, I can't believe that I helped trick Nell into killing herself. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't know, man, it's just too I think we I called it morally mushy when we first reviewed it. But uh, I mean, I still love the, the series and Flanagan's going to remain one of my favorite directors. But yeah, I think that that ending really leaves a lot to be desired. At least that's where I'm at. having watched it twice now. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I, I think she's a villain um, and kind of the the redemption happens when, I mean, the kids go out and use their gifts for the good of others instead of being cooped up in the house or not, not cooped up. But there's kind of a statement against families trying to over shelter their children, I guess. And this mother's kind of the um, kind of wanting to keep the kids to themselves herself where they never grow up and they never go out. And what was the statement you you probably remember since you've seen it twice? Um Oh, you're never, they never suffer if they don't leave, but they also never do anything good either. Yeah. That's the back and forth between her and the dad. Yeah. That's the thing. Like she becomes this predatory, she's almost like a spider at the middle of a web in Hill House, again, mm-hmm. resulting in the death of a young child and her own daughter. Yeah. And there's never a, you know, there's never a, a repudiation of that. It's just like, oh, it's great. Mom and dad are together with Nell in there, and then we're going to go do our own thing. I, yeah, for this to be a morally upright ending, 
there has to be some reckoning. I'm not saying that she has to be, uh, you know, destroyed, but she needs to realize that she's fallen under the sway of evil influences and participated in evil. You know, there's that the the flapper lady, the ghost of the, the woman from like the 20s, who's the deceiver. Mm-hmm. And if you know, if Olivia was, hey, I realize you've deceived me. I've done some awful things, but I'm not going to let you hurt anyone else, right? And so now, mm-hmm. uh, Liv becomes a redemptive force within the ecosystem of the house's ghosts. Well, that's that's a redemptive arc for her. But to just, I mean, it feels like they just want to sweep under the rug that, yeah, she killed a little girl, she killed her own daughter, and if she had her way, if Dad hadn't agreed to die, she would have she would have seen her children killed, and mm-hmm. she would have let Luke die on the floor after injecting himself with rat poison. We're Did supposed to see her as a as a as some kind of noble character. Did he inject himself? Well, I'm assuming so. Okay. Uh, you know, you have this flashback scene where he meets the the girl that he left the uh, rehabilitation clinic to go find, and then when he finds her, he's he's going to help get her clean, but she steals his money and disappears. Right. And she she you know in the vision produces heroin and says, "Hey, take it with me." She shoots herself up, and he's like, "No, no, I'm not going to." And she says, "You already have." Yeah, and he remember. looks down, and you know, then when we see him in the real world in the green, or the red room, he um, he has a needle in his vein. He's you know he's foaming at the mouth, mm-hmm. and so I'm assuming I'm assuming that somehow in distracting him, it, it also got him to inject himself because we've not seen the I don't think we've seen the ghosts do anything that forward to anybody who's living. They mess with them, and they're like. Uh, knock on a door or bang on the wall, but they don't like physically grab hold of them and whatnot. And so mm-hmm. I'm assuming that he he did it to himself. Gotcha. Like Nail did, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So anyway, that's what I was watching uh, a lot of the time this week. And again, still love that series, but just the more I chew on it, the, the more dissatisfied I get with that ending. Uh, but there's something that you and I both were watching that we consider doing a complete episode on, and we're going to make this a double feature episode. Netflix last month, something you alerted me to, added this series called Creeped Out that is aimed at younger watchers, and they they sold it as uh, Black Mirror, sort of for teenagers. If you're not Mm -hmm. familiar with Black Mirror, it's a, uh, you know, I don't want to use the language of woke, um, but it's a socially aware horror series coming out of Britain that has really captured a lot of people's attention because it's a very thoughtful, you know, project uh, in the horror genre that's trying to comment on issues within society that maybe we're not aware of as being malicious in and of themselves. Mm -hmm. And I've watched a few of those. I can't commend that, you know, as a Christian to everybody to watch, but the ones that I have seen have been thought provoking. And so the -hmm. people creating Creeped Out and obviously Netflix and bringing it to their service, uh, they're doing sort of similar stuff, trying to think about issues that is, that are impacting teenagers and uh, frame it in such a way that, some of the risks and dangers are exposed. And uh, I don't know, man, after having watched Creeped Out, I kind of feel like it's successful. Yeah. I don't um, I don't commend everything that's in the series, but some of these episodes are really great. And yeah. I kind of wish I could put them in front of the teenagers in my life. You know, I don't, I don't have the ability to go to the teenagers I teach uh, and, and say, hey, you guys need to sit down and watch episode four, five, and six, because I don't know what their parents' consciences are. But, but some of the episodes here are really provocative and highlight some, some things that I think are passing unawares that are dangerous to us. Were you, I mean, what were your thoughts on the series in, in, in general? In general, I enjoyed it. Um, but like the last three or four episodes really threw me for a loop. Like I, I enjoyed like the first nine and then, and then like the final four. It just got on my nerves. This this wishy washy. They want to they they want to argue for 
morality and right and wrong while also on the flip side saying, well, you know, they want, they want, they want eternal life because they emphasize reincarnation in one of them. Um, they want, they want, um, they want accountability. Like they, they don't want people to be able to just get away with stuff. Um, they want, they want a, something underlying for you to be good, a good person. But but I don't know. It's just like well well maybe somebody's out there holding you accountable. It's just that stuff got on my nerves. You say um, it's too scattered shot, right? That there's no objective morality. They uh, they don't they don't realize, but they don't want God, but they want everything that God offers. Like you, you know what I'm saying? Like they want eternal life, but they want it their own way. They want accountability. They want people to not get away with things. You know, in the long run. Um, but they don't, but God, they don't want a God who will hold people accountable. They, I mean, it's just, it, it got, that aggravated me. Um, yeah. I, I know exactly make, what you're talking about. It's, it it's makes kind them of God. Yeah. It makes them God. Like they want, they want to tell God how he can be and how he can't be. And, um, well, doesn't that sound like a human project? Well, so this aired on the children's BBC from, uh, the 31st of October in 2017 up okay. till, uh, kind of early in 2018. And I think the the order in which the episodes aired is different from the arrangement that Netflix has them in. Mm-hmm. So here's what I'd like to do for our kind of review of this series. Let me read you the Wikipedia summaries of each episode as they aired uh, on the Children's BBC. And then we can just speak to each episode to whatever degree we think it's important. We sure. can just take it casually. So with that in mind, the first the first episode in the series was called Slapstick. And this is the one where uh, Jessie is constantly embarrassed by her parents' behavior. She comes across a puppet show on the beach and tells the puppet everything with unexpected consequences. The next morning, Jessie's parents are transformed into living puppets. But she quickly realizes how much she misses her real mom and dad and must try to get them back. And this is the episode that I think the, the puppet uh, Mr. Blackteeth shows up in. Mm-hmm. So, Jerry, what did you think about that episode? Um, from what I remember, I like that one pretty well. Um, it, it's pretty know. universal, right? Parent, parents, you know, for teenagers, either they're embarrassing in uh, the way we saw kind of this slapstick behavior from their mom and dad. They, you know, they won't help you fit in with the cool kids by buying you the right stuff or, or for whatever reason. You know, I think kids are tempted to say, I wish I had a different set of parents. So mm-hmm. I think this speaks to the human condition as experienced by a lot of teenagers who even come from traditional households, right? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, one thing that I found odd in that was a, just a little bit what, um, I don't know, what do you think about, I mean, the girl, I mean, I've seen this in a lot of movies, but the girl who was a bully, mm-hmm. um, it showed, you know, basically argued that she was a victim of her mother's bullying, and that's why she was bullying other girls. Um what are your thoughts about that? I mean, these are young teenagers, probably 13. Well, you know, I guess I really actually enjoyed that in the in the episode because it does, it plays at first like the little girl is just replicating what she sees modeled at home. Mm-hmm. But that, I think, is, is a distraction or a red herring because almost immediately after that, it seems like the protagonist in the episode and this bully girl are connecting. But then we see the protagonist out on a deck and Mm -hmm. the the young woman just runs up and sprays her down with like ketchup. Yeah. And you realize, you know, it doesn't matter really what's going on at home. That kind of behavior just is unjustifiable. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't matter how bad you're being treated. Uh, That doesn't give you a blank check to treat people this way. And so I guess I, I guess I came away thinking like (laughs) what, uh, what Alfred said about, uh, the Joker in the Nolan uh, film where he says just some people want to watch the world burn. Yeah. That there are just people out there for whatever reason. They they enjoy 
maliciousness for its own sake. Mm-hmm. And it's not really blameable on any anybody else. It's within their own heart. But anyway, that was what I took from from that episode. Right or wrong? Yeah. No, I think that I think that's right. I mean, now that you're now that you're showing that and the uh you know, I mean it's thought provoking, right? I mean, do we really I mean, my parents got on my nerves growing up too. Um, I mean, not, not righteously, obviously, but, um, but I mean, I just think about, <laughs> Jeff, I remember your mama, um, and I remember you being embarrassed at uh, summer camp. Do you remember when your mama dressed up like, uh, oh, it wasn't just your mom. It was Gooch's mom. Um, you know what I'm talking about? They dressed up and acted like they were playing musical instruments. Jared, it's been, it's been a very expensive and time consuming process with my therapist <laughs> to, uh, to chase that memory out of my mind. So thank you for undoing all of that. Hey, I will forever remember that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I remember you being embarrassed by it, but it was fun. Yeah. Yeah. I had a great mom. I had a great mom. <laughs> I say had, I have a great mom, but she was great in my teenage years. So uh, I realized, like you said, there were times I felt embarrassed, but it was it was a product of someone having an embarrassment of riches and uh, not realizing how good they had it, you know. Right. And I think this movie, I mean, this that episode kind of shows that to this little girl. Like, you don't really want parents who you control. I mean. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's it's a classic storytelling move to say, are you sure this is really what you want? Mm-hmm. I mean, the Lord does it with Israel even. Uh, right. You guys sure you want a king? Because remember yeah. what kings do. They tax you and they take your children for, to fight in their wars. And mm-hmm. uh, So this is a this is, again, just a classic story of let's see what it's like when you get what you want. So mm-hmm. uh, this is one. You know, this I would call this mid-grade for the series. This wasn't one of the best episodes, but it wasn't one of the worst either. And right. the fact that this is sort of middle of the middle tier for them, I think, says something about how good this series is, even though they're really major weaknesses. Yeah. Uh, the next two in, excuse me, the next three in the original broadcast order are the three that I'm going to say are, I guess, the the three best in the in the series in terms of trying to make you think about issues, delivering legitimate scares, and telling a really compelling story. Okay. So the the next one that that aired it was November seventh of two thousand seventeen. It was Cat Food, and the synopsis is Stu cheats his mom, uh, excuse me, cheats his mum into getting a day off sick from school, but he finds out the hard way what the creepy old lady in the house across the road is up to. Uh, and this one, to me, really got at uh, human wickedness. So if you remember, this kid is, he's gaming everybody in his life. He's basically Ferris Bueller turned up to 11. Yeah. And so he's able to trick his mom into thinking he's sick so he can stay home from school. His dad's a teacher, so he knows how to like, or I don't even know if he, he might be more than a teacher. He may be like the principal of the school. He, he breaks into his filing cabinet, copies the test, so he's not penalized for not being in class. He's spying on his neighbor, but then he realizes, oh, my neighbor's a monster. And uh, when he tells his mom, she goes over to to verify that that is not the case. And eventually he gets locked into this conversation with with the old lady who he knows is, in fact, a monster who uh, this monster steals other people's identities. Once the body that they have stolen ages to the point it's no longer useful, the monster goes and finds someone younger and she wants to take Stu's body. Mm-hmm. And uh, they play a game. He cheats to win and feels like everything's been rosy, but he comes to dinner the next day and his little sister who he loves and who has been watching out for him. Well, because of her affections for Stu, the monster preyed upon that, cheated to beat her in the same game. And so now mm-hmm. his little sister's gone and the monster's there. Yeah. And if you remember, the episode ends with um, the monster telling Steve, if you hadn't taught me that trick, I wouldn't have known how to take her body. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I just thought, man, I just thought, what a great commentary on 
human ingenuity and what it can ultimately produce, right? When it's when it's aimed at selfish ends. Mm-hmm. You know, what, what does a man gain if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? I think that's kind of what's going on there in the cat food episode. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. He lost. Yeah. I mean, it was his undoing. He did this. Yeah. And, and in that sense, he's the actual monster. Right. He's just as monstrous as this thing sitting across from him because everybody in his life was just a utility for him to make use of. Yeah. Good call. Yeah. Uh, third one was trolled, which was a pretty interesting concept. So we're at a private school, and at this private school, there's a, a character named Sam. He's getting anonymously on the school social media site, and he's posting cruel messages and gossip messages and you know letting secrets out through this anonymous social media. Uh, but then he gets a message from someone saying, if you don't quit, there's going to be consequences. And Wikipedia says he soon understands the true meaning of being a troll. So why don't you flesh that out for the listeners here, Jared? Um, yeah, he, he ends up being basically becoming what he is. I mean, what he's at least doing outwardly, um, he ends up becoming a troll, like turning into one. And, and so he, um, physically he begins to deform and looks, yeah. you know, looks like the classic troll under the bridge. This all comes to a head when he's got a choral solo to perform in order for him to stay in the school. But mm-hmm. he's, he's wanting to hide his appearance because he's becoming a troll. Right, and all he all he has to do is tell the truth. Um, and if he tells the truth, I believe before the sun goes down, um, he'll be healed. Yeah. So there was two conditions placed on him. One, he could just stay out of sight and not let anyone see him. Right. Yeah. Because that's what trolls are supposed to do during the daylight hours. They stay out of sight. Or he could go and let people see him and confess what he had done. And either way, he would have regained his humanity. Mm-hmm. But he ends up doing neither one. He he lets people see him because the, the choral solo goes sideways. People end up laying eyes on him. Uh, but he also refuses to confess. Mm-hmm. And so, well, I mean, how, won't you tell him how it, how it goes from there? Yeah, he's running away trying to escape uh, once, once people realize what he is. And he went out in the light. I believe he wasn't supposed to let the light hit him. Yeah, maybe uh, that was it. Like, that, that's classic with trolls, too, because they turned to stone. Yeah, he turned to stone, and, um, you know, at the end, it kind of shows. So th- so it's a it's a, an emphasis on, you know, if, if you go after people anonymously, then anonymous people can go after you. You know, if you justify this type of behavior, um, those who are trolls can be trolled. And um, it was kind of a golden rule type episode, right? Yeah, um, for sure. Do, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. I also thought it was it was interesting that it's putting it in front of us that engaging in unhuman behaviors, you know, exposing secrets, casting aspersions, gossiping, unhuman behaviors actually lead you to become dehumanized. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you're going to reap the consequences of that, which is a very it's an idea that's very consistent with sort of an Ecclesiastes view of the world or, or the book of Proverbs. You know, there's mm-hmm. Nothing done in secret that the Lord won't make known in public if, if you try to hide your sin. And so uh, I thought that one was really well done. Yeah. Be sure your sins will find you out, right? Absolutely. Be sure. Yeah. Uh, the fourth one was Marty. Again, this is the one that you told me about that really got my interest peaked in this series. All Kim wants to be is accepted by the popular gang at school. The arrival of her perfect new phone gives her a helping hand, but soon everything starts to unravel. Is it a glitch in the technology or something stranger? So Kim gets this super new smartphone and the algorithms and whatnot tell her the right kind of social media posts to send out into the interwebs. And it gives her all this newfound popularity. But the phone has a personality 
And I think it's male in, in this one. It's not Siri. It's, you know, some guy and the guy wants her for himself and becomes a obsessive, controlling boyfriend. <laughs> Um, ends up they have a they have a lover's quarrel right that she she starts realizing what she's gotten into in this Faustian bargain with this phone mm-hmm. and tries to to make a break and the phone loses its temper and destroys her social life right right uh, but how does the episode end Jared I thought that was the most chilling part of the episode um, she's about to break it out or she's talking to it still even though it's under concrete yeah so her friend. Uh, I mean, again, it's just, it's such a, uh, the series does a couple like calls to repentance really well. Basically, basically her friend had engineered it so that the phone would destroy this false popularity she developed Mm -hmm. so that the phone would no longer have power over her. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, And you get the impression that once that had happened in order to put this phone out of her life, they bury it in fresh concrete. But we see for Kim that the the lure of being popular is so powerful that she starts sneaking around behind her friend's back and visiting the phone in the concrete mm-hmm. and talking to it down there. And so, you know, we've talked on here before about how dangerous technology is and how phones are training us to do their will rather than vice versa. Yeah, I, I thought this episode captured that incredibly well, and also. You know, it said that the problem is not ultimately in the device. The problem is within us. Yeah. The device only activates this desire for self, uh, self-glorification self that we have. Yeah, yeah. Good call, man. I, it's interesting. Like, uh, our hearts, uh, there are lies all around us, and our hearts love lies. Like, uh, you're not really popular just because you have a lot of followers on social media, you know? Or friends in the real world. I mean. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just. Man, the deception that is that some of the I mean, social media can be good, but it's there's so much deception there that we are prone to. Yeah. And, and you know, those devices are powerful. Again, we've talked about this in episodes like uh, Next Gen, which you can listen to in our archive. Those devices are so powerful, mm-hmm. but the power they present to us is often just to, to express our sinfulness on a on a grander stage and a broader scale. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, who like you can just look at the discourse on social media and see that folks folks will say say some crazy off the wall stuff if they have an anonymous account or mm-hmm. I mean, even if they're not looking at someone. Right. I mean, if mm-hmm. you were sitting across from someone, you wouldn't say this stuff, you know? Yeah. I mean, this is back to the troll episode. You know, it, it dehumanizes yeah. us. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Episode five, a boy called Red. Vincent takes a trip back to his father's family home. But as he checks out the house, he finds there's something unexplained lurking in the cellar. And uh, yeah. is this the one where the the kid goes back in time and becomes his dad's best friend? Yes. OK. OK. We'll take it away from there. Um, That one, I didn't understand the main point as much. Yeah, me uh, either. I didn't think there was some underlying like social commentary there. I didn't either. It was odd that... Um, I mean, it made me aggravate at the daddy more than anything. Um, you know, well, this set that up and walk us through where that aggravation comes from. Well, it's this: the dad is basically doesn't have any time for his son because of um, stress that has been caused in the past. If I, if what I'm understanding right, like he had lost his friend in the past and kind of forgot how to have fun due to losing his friend. Yeah, it's uh, something like that. So it's led him to be alienated from his wife and and from his daughter. Yeah, he's just all work and no play, basically. And um, and so it's kind of this, I think it's an emphasis on the children, because these are all aimed at children, right? Um, or teens, tweens. So 
I think the, the purpose is to tell the kid to try to understand the parent more. And maybe there's something that's happened in your parents' past that makes them the way they are now. And kind of trying to get kids to be more sympathetic towards their parents. Yeah, maybe that is it. it it's a... It's sort of a flippant way to do that, though, because the kid just basically he connects with his dad through beating the high score on an Atari twenty eight hundred game or whatever it was. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's telling the kid try to find something your your parents like instead of it should be the other way around. I believe. I mean, the parents have the responsibility to try to invest in what their kids enjoy. Yeah. Um, instead of expecting a, a kid to to bend to us, that that is just. That's just odd. The most mature should be the ones who bend, right? Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's on the parents to to seek out and, and try to connect with their children. Although I will say as a show that's aimed at teenagers, it is a good thing for them to hear the message of like, well, see if you can empathize with your parents too, right? Like sure. try to meet them in the middle. I just didn't think it was a particularly powerful episode, uh, yeah. not specifically compared to the uh, the ones we just got done talking about. Oh, yeah. Uh, after that was the call, and uh, Pearl feels this la- this young lady named Pearl feels uncomfortable in her own skin. When a mysterious call draws her back to the sea, she embarks on a journey of discovery that she may come to regret. And so, I, this is a young lady who I think she finds out she's a mermaid, a, a siren. I think a siren. That's right. She asks if she's a mermaid. And they're like, no, that's right. It's a it's a siren. What do you take as the theme of this one? I like this one because. Um, I mean, I, it was basically you can use you could be a monster if you choose to use your gifts in monstrous ways. Um, I, I've never seen I might be wrong, but from a secular outlet, I have never seen an emphasis on you might be the monster like the, this warning of it's the closest to sin that I've seen hmm. in. I mean, can you think of other things that aren't overtly Christian where there's this emphasis on yeah, you you better be careful because you may be you may be the problem. You may be the not just the problem, but they. I think it actually uses the language like you may be the monster. Yeah, I mean, there's there's lots of different people who kind of use monster. There's a lot of people in pop culture who use monster as a as a term of endearment, right? Something about Lady Gaga's little monsters and stuff like that. So the idea is like mm-hmm. we're strange, we're weird, but it's not in the sense that we're actually a threat to to the good of our neighbor. Mm-hmm. Or our own selves, you know. It's a it's a way of saying that we're embracing being the other, just like everybody else. And uh, mm-hmm. yeah, this one, I, you know, I took a different read on this one. So this young lady is torn between these powers that come with being a siren mm-hmm. and the call of her adopted family. And so, is she going to use her powers to sort of force her will on the broader world? And identify with this stranger who is also a siren and is calling her into basically a adversarial role uh, with the with the surface level world. Mm-hmm. Or is she going to find her identity in the affections of the family who found her on the beach and adopted her and raised her as a daughter? Mm-hmm. And she ultimately says that she she's going to find her her identity in the love of the family that adopted her rather than these special gifts. Right. And that's that's pretty wonderful. I mean, you can see the church there. You can see the kingdom of Christ there um, in, in an age that's very curious about how we find our identity, particularly how our identity relates to the characteristics that are part of us in our physical body saying, find your identity in the group that loves you and cares for you. I'm sure they don't have the church in mind at all. But the the best expression of that is the kingdom of Christ, where this loving Savior adopts you into a new family, and they come alongside you as fellow brothers and sisters. And together, y'all work for each other's good, even as you seek glory of your Savior. Um, I think this episode called The Call 
yeah, it dovetails with that image pretty nicely for a Christian. Mm, yeah. So that's another high watermark. Uh, the next one was another one I didn't really understand the the point of, unless it's there to authorize people being lazy and self centered and and never accomplishing anything. I sound like the old man on the <laughs> front porch. Get off my lawn, kids! But it, this one's called the bravery badge. You remember this one? It's a Girl Scout uh, camping trip. Yeah. So the summary just says, on a Girl Scout trip to Woodland, Dent really wishes she could call a cab home. Could you give us a better description than that, Jared? Um, is it This is the one where the Girl Scouts go out in the woods. Yeah, and they, they listen to some kind of fungus. Yeah, they go out in the woods and they, um, you know, there's stories of previous Girl Scout groups being out in the woods and going missing. And so they go out there and a girl goes to the restroom at night and she gets out and she hears this music. Um, you know, this music coming from the ground. And so she sticks her ear there. And what it is, it's a parasite that jumps in her ear and then it turns them into zombies. And uh, it keeps spreading throughout the the group until one of the girls somehow figures out that music, you know, turn up your music real loud. And it's... Um, it it is a weird episode. It's hard to capture because it kills the things. Yeah, the the one girl who who resists it is the one who has spent her time alienated from everybody else, buried up in her headphones, yeah. listening to music. But that becomes the mechanism of her redemption. Yeah, and eventually she pops the she pops her headphones out and lets the music play over the speakers on her phone, and it drives that parasite out, like you said, and kills it. Mm-hmm. And then by the end of the episode, all the people who have been liberated from that parasite as they encounter other people taken over by the parasite. Well, they're all playing rock music on their phone. And that's the last image we get. Uh, is it is the last image with their headphones? No, no, no. They're all holding their phones up as that other Girl Scout troop that's also been taken over comes shambling out of the forest. Yeah, I think the assumption is that in that one is that music is supposed to be enjoyed by all to the point where see the the girl who had the headphones on her head, she uh-huh. was the she was the true zombie. And it wasn't until she pulled those headphones off that redemption came. You, you know what I'm saying? Like it's, Oh dude, I think that's great. It, I I didn't get there, but that makes all the sense in the world. That really flips the my evaluation of that episode. Cuz I, I guess I had thought it was like encouraging the the malcontent and the one who uh, just wants to be in their own world. You mm-hmm. know what I'm saying? Using technology to isolate themselves. Uh, your read is much more positive and much more healthy. I'm I'm all about that one. Anything else to say on Bravery Badge? No, I, li- I like that one pretty well. I mean, I'm a zombie fan, and I just, those girls were kind of creepy. A little yeah, bit. I watch sure. that with, I watch that with my kids, and <laughs> it creep. you know, I like it that it, I mean, it creeps them out a little bit, and that little, my kids were running around doing that little tune. Na-na-na-na-na-na, uh, <laughs> you know. Nice. You got some pretty cool kids. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. Um, next one up was Spaceman, and this is one, maybe you can tell me how to find the good in it. Uh, Spud and Thomas go for a ramble through the woods. I just love how British this is. Go through for a ramble through the woods, looking for a den and find much more than they bargained for. And this is the one where they come across, uh, what looks like a young boy who's a space alien Mm -hmm. trying to get back home. Uh, they, they realize that he's actually a full grown member of his species and he's leading the invasion force, Mm -hmm. but they manage somehow to send his rocket ship out into space in a way that will, uh, you know, lead the invading force away from Earth. But the kid is left on Earth. Mm-hmm. Uh, excuse me, the kid, the alien is left on Earth. And we realize the kid doesn't have a mouth. Do you remember that? Yeah. So what are we supposed to gather from that episode? Um, My understanding, I think I think the end little moral was, uh, 
you know, not be careful because everyone may not be who they say they are or something like that. Yeah, that's a good one then. Yeah. That, that appearances are deceiving and not everybody's going to tell you the truth. Yeah. It's like a horror, um, you know, the cautionary tale. That's what, that's one of the good things about horror. And I think that it kind of captures that a little bit in that episode. Yeah. Okay. So it's, it's to warn you say the, for instance, like we saw in uh, John Cho's movie Searching, that not every pre- not everybody who presents themselves to you online mm-hmm. is being honest about who they are. Absolutely, yeah. Well, healthy skepticism. Okay, okay. And, you know, maybe that is a social media thing. Like um, that appeared to be a child. It appeared to be a normal human being, um, and it wasn't at all what it appeared. And maybe that's a maybe that is a social media kind of thing that's being presented there. Like a commentary. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, number nine is what I think was actually the scariest episode in the series. It was called Kindle Sticks. Yeah. And Esme, the world's worst babysitter, takes a job <laughs> with a nice new family, but finds herself outfoxed. Why don't you tell us more, Jared? Um, From what I remember, this uh, she was just an awful babysitter would try to scare the kids. And uh, as soon as she'd get there, the parents would leave, you know, and um, she starts acting like, well, there's a monster outside, right? Yeah, and it's, and, uh, it, it'll kill us unless you get in bed and go to sleep. Yeah. Uh, so most of the time it worked. They It would scare the kids to death. They would go upstairs and go to sleep. And uh, eventually there's a, a kid that's he dressed up like a lion or what's he dressed up like? I think a fox. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's a little well, girl dressed up like a fox. Gotcha. And she says her name is Kindlesticks, right? Or no, there's a friend. She has an imaginary friend named Kindlesticks. Yeah, and Kindlesticks doesn't like it when when babysitters are mean to children. Right, right. And so, you know, long story short, um, she ends up being scared by what she thinks is this imaginary friend, Kindle Sticks. But what it turns out to be is that the kid is actually Kindle Sticks. You don't you don't realize that until the very end. But the real kid has been upstairs asleep. Yeah. And there's this whole like night of terror where the, the babysitter and the child are running in terror from Kindle Sticks. She finds out it's just Kindle Sticks that's been there all along. What do you think the moral of that one was? Um, I guess what goes around comes around or, um, this is, I guess I do unto others as you have them do unto you. Cause basically she is being made to feel like she has made all these children feel. Yeah. Right. That, that's what I took it as too. And, uh, it was a pretty good standalone little scary story. Yeah. Uh, number 10 was shed no fear. So Greg has a hunch that all is not well with his friend, Dave. When he follows him to his aunt shed, the adventure is only just beginning. Yeah, I need you to explain this one to me. I had a real hard time with this one, too. The only thing I can think that it's trying to communicate is that you need to be careful who you choose as your friends and make sure that the ones you're closest to are the ones who really have your best interests at heart. Okay. So we have Greg, who in younger years was good friends with this kid named Dave. But as they've grown a little bit older, Greg has become a nerd on the outs. You know, like he's a he's a fringe uh, person socially. He's a nerd that nobody's really he didn't have any group to connect with. Dave has become an athlete and is on the football team. But Greg begins to notice that Dave is showing up late to class and he's he's filthy and there's just something weirds going on. So he, I guess, just because he still cares about his old friend, sneaks out, sees that Dave has found a monster living in his aunt's shed. Mm-hmm. And every time he tries to confront the monster, the monster teleports him like across town mm-hmm. to an abandoned apartment complex. Is that, I mean, is that what you saw? Yeah. Okay. And they dumps him into this stagnant swimming pool. It's awful. Yeah. Well, eventually Greg kind of takes up that cause in unison with Dave, figures out how to defeat this monster. And by the end of the episode, they're reconciled and they're good friends again. 
Yeah, it's that, but it's the monster is uh, the aunt at the end talks about her husband leaving. He's left something behind in the shed, and you notice that it's darkness. Uh, the monster is like living shadow. Yeah, and the light destroys the darkness, right? Yeah. Um, and I wonder if it's a testament, something about secrets or skeletons in the closet, or I wonder if some of that's in there too. Like, well, by the uh, time they get the shed cleaned out, she says, "Clean out the basement," and there's a monster down there too. Yeah, yeah. Like, there's more stuff you got to deal with. Um, I don't know, but the friends are reconciled because they're they have a common monster to fight. Um, well, yeah, yes, that's true, but only because Greg decides to help his buddy out. You know, Greg could have walked right. away from that thing entirely. Right. Yeah, that one. I guess that one's one of the most confusing ones. Yeah, yeah. It's like like you're saying it teleports them and <laughs> drops them. I mean, it was it's kind of out there. Like what what. <laughs> This makes zero sense, you know? Yeah, yeah. Listener, if you have watched through Creeped Out 2 and have a better understanding of this material, please get at us. We will favorably cite you on our next episode as you clear up exactly what we're supposed to take away from Shed No Fear. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's two more stories over three episodes. The first one is called The Traveler. So Jody and Brandon find themselves stuck in between times and they are not alone. Uh, We meet a young lady named Jody, her friend Brandon, and they use their free time to just terrorize their neighbors in uh, in this apartment complex. And I say terrorize, like just pulling mean pranks, destroying potted plants that are left outside or dropping eggs on people's heads. And uh, eventually they come across this refugee from the Blue Man Group <laughs> who is an agent of cosmic reckoning. He stops time like Zach Morris used to be able to. Yes. Oh, man, you're just dropping stuff left and right, man, from the 90s. <laughs> and uh, they end up use they end up Jody ends up having uh, found the, the device that he uses to stop time. She takes it and he gets on her trail. And basically, he's the agent of of justice. So like when people do evil things, he shows up and does evil back to them. And specifically, he does evil to them by aging them dramatically. Mm -hmm. And uh, anyway, I I think you and I talked about this one off air. Do you remember or can you give our listeners sort of the summary of how they lead into the episode? Um, The daughter is stealing time from her mom by being a sorry daughter. Yeah. And so her mom's having to come behind her and clean up after her. And I mean that literally, but also like take time out of work to get her out of trouble or to, to discipline her or to replace the TV she broke. Yeah. Um, the, the voice over at the beginning of the episode says, what if there's somebody out there watching who will yeah. hold you responsible for the things you do? Yeah. Talk about, talk about uh, an episode that's thinking about God. Right. So they want they want God like God may be out there. You know, <laughs> there may be someone who's out there with a sense of justice, and he he won't let you get away with it any more than he'll let the other unjust people get away with it. Yeah, that was that one ticked me off because like, come on, folks, and not only that, but the blue man God is so much better than that blue man. <laughs> you know, yeah, this guy's just again what we were talking about earlier. There's no like overarching moral standard which he represents. Right. He just hands a card that says, if you take, I'll take from you. But it, it's arbitrary and capricious, which I get lots of people think about God in those terms. But um, if you actually understand the God who is and how he presents himself, mm-hmm. well, you're going to you're going to have a much, much better understanding. And 
see, I think, in more lovely fashion, a God who is good and is committed to seeing that good prevails in his cosmos. Yeah, this might have been, it might have been emphasis on karma. Like, Yeah, I think arguing, it's very much more karmaic. Yeah. Yeah, arguing that there's a mind to karma maybe or a, I don't an know. An enforcer. Maybe, yeah, an enforcer. That sounds right. Because it's not any God that I know, right? I mean, yeah. it's, I mean, if that's what they think of God, good grief, no wonder they don't want to serve him. Yeah, but it also says that we're all kind of sitting around with this lingering suspicion that somebody's watching and that we're not going to get away with it after all. Yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's a conscience episode. Hey, look, the last story is the one that I just, it, this show went off the rails for, uh, <laughs> for me on. So it's a two-parter. It's called Sideshow. And we meet this kid named Ace. He is an amazing aromaologist <laughs> in an old-fashioned circus. So he comes out and tells people secrets based on, I guess, what he can smell. And uh, eventually he gets discontented because he's living in the circus troupe that's been organized by this gentleman who, who tells them that they were all abandoned children and that he took them in and took care of them. But Ace has these memories of a family and he wants a mom and a dad and brothers and sisters. And so he convinces this guy to take him wherever he thinks his family lives and uh, eventually he settles on one home. He runs up to the family members and he says, Dad, Mom. And they're like, who are you? We've never seen you before. And eventually, though, his discontent with this narrative he's been given about who he is, um, he he spreads it among the other circus performers. And, and will you tell them what ends up being the payoff, Jared? Tell our listeners. Well, I didn't see it coming. I should have. Um, but they're all animals <laughs> that have been transformed into human beings. Yeah, so the the the, tra- the trapeze artists are like humanized monkeys. Yeah, and one of the um, I don't know what you'd even call this person, but sort of a, a an old time baton twirler is a hummingbird, right? Yeah. Anyway, Ace ends up being a golden retriever. <laughs> it's so dumb saying it out loud. <laughs> and that family that he remembered, well, they were his owners. And as a dog, he goes back to find them. And we see this missing poster where they'd been looking for their dog Ace for years. It's so funny, dude, because, <laughs> oh, man, I mean, animals eat their young dogs, sniff their rear ends and all kinds of stuff. And, and they're like acting like, oh, if, wouldn't you want to be a dog? I don't want to be a dog. <laughs> you know, like, like they're trying to make these human beings envious of dogs. And, uh, yeah, and we're supposed to-, to see this guy's a bad guy who like made these animals human. Yeah. And he, seriously, man, Goofy is the very best version of, of evaluating this story. Because hey, the man. darker side of this is that these people are saying it's Bruce McDonald and, and Steve Hughes, I think, are the guys who uh, who are the creators behind this. Um, Bede Blake and Robert Butler involved as well. But this creative collective could very well be saying that it's dumb of us to think of human beings as anything other than animals. And if we start assigning unique status to human beings, then we create all these problems that would go away if we just recognize that we're all animals. You know, like this collapsing the uniqueness of humanity into the natural order in a way that doesn't recognize the image of God held uniquely by humans. Hmm. And if that's what they're doing with this, then it becomes really twisted and evil. Mm -hmm. So, again, at at the very best, that two-parter is just dumb and pointless. Mm -hmm. The worst version of that is is considerably more disturbing. I wonder if it was making a statement against... 
zoos and circuses, like animal rides, PETA type stuff. Oh, so like if we kidnap animals and make them perform. Yeah. Maybe. Maybe that's a median position between my my dark suspicions and the goofiness of the thing. Well, it's still stupid, though. Like, I mean, you cannot. But you know how we, we talk about, like, Jurassic Park and stuff. They try to humanize the dinosaurs to make us love them and value them, right? Mm-hmm. Well, in this one, they didn't humanize them. They They tried to do the opposite. They tried to say, no, no, no. Animals are human too. No, they're better than humans. <laughs> like, oh gosh! <laughs> I'm like you gotta be kidding me, man. Look, I love, I've got a little dog. I love my little dog, Allie, but she's a dog. <laughs> you know, she she. I mean, I understand. There's you know, Jeff Jeff loves dogs too. He you know, uh, it's just, I, but I don't love her like I love my children or va- value her the way I value my children. And she's definitely not better than my children. Yeah, and I mean, I, I, who wants to endorse like zoos and SeaWorld where there's all these long lists of mistreatment of animals? But nonetheless, that's not what's going on in this episode because the guy has cared for these people very well. Yeah. <laughs> they they have rationality. <laughs> they're, they're, it's not like he's abusing them, uh, but somehow he's a monster for, for making them human. I, I really don't know what to do with that one. So again, listener, if you've got a better <laughs> read on this, a mo- more coherent read, I'd love to hear it because this one, again, to me was just where the series fell off a cliff. I was pretty happy with it, all things considered up until this two-parter and the two-parter i just thought okay i should have turned this off two episodes ago yeah i was thinking dude if they just ended it at 10 you know i'd be good to go absolutely well i was reading an uh, interview with the guys who created this on den of geek and i thought this is how maybe we would close Sure. Uh, the creator said things like, are you afraid of the dark? Which I loved. Goosebumps, which I read some of, but I never watched the TV show. Eerie Indiana, which my family is watching right now and my kids love it. Cool. And Round the Twist. All those shows took themselves very seriously, which was really exciting. There was no winking at the audience. You weren't dragged out of it. You were in that moment. There's something else, excuse me, that's something else that you don't get a lot on kids' TV now. It's often a bit shiny or a bit happy. I think kids want this stuff. The more you treat them with respect, don't talk down to them, the happier they are. One of the aims with Creeped Out is to get the young audience talking. I think kids will talk about these stories. I tell them, and I think they'll talk about them in playgrounds and online and decades later. And, uh, you know, all things considered, I think they accomplish that aim. One, I think they're right that the best entertainment for children, be it movies, shows, or books, uh, the best entertainment for children is not childish, uh, and it, it treats the audience with respect. And I do think these stories will get people talking. Mm-hmm. So mission accomplished to them. What else you got to say on Creeped Out, Jared? Well, I, I agree that it gets them talking. But, dude, if some of these you and I can't even figure out, you know what I'm saying? It's going to be, I mean, there's smart teens out there, right? I mean, but I'm not Pre-teens saying that we're too, smart. Yeah. I'm not saying that we're necessarily smart, but adults, if an adult who you know, you've got a master's. I've, I mean, we, you know, we, and we, we, we read all the time because of preaching and, and you teach at a, at a high school and you teach college level courses. I mean, if we can't figure some of these things out, you know, most of the teens out there aren't going to be able to figure it out either, are they? Well, here's where I want to, you know, I want to give the benefit of the doubt to students. And I want to say that they are, you know, they're going to chew on these things and see stuff we're not. Obviously, it's aimed at a different demographic than who we are. Sure. That could be part of our problem. The uh, the other thing is, it seems like the creators just wanted 
to get kids talking about some of these social issues. Okay. Maybe not give them a message. Although I think some of the messaging that comes through this is as transparent as it could possibly be. Yeah, that's true. But nonetheless, if their goal is just to get them talking about their relationship to their phone or uh, how their online personality relates to their real life personality, uh, that's a win, right? Yeah. All right, Jerry. Well, I think that will be a good time to wrap up. What you watching? What you watching? What you watching? We want to talk about our actual feature presentation here, Bohemian Rhapsody. Absolutely. Okay, Jared. So this is a biopic on the the rock band Queen and particularly their flamboyant and charismatic lead singer, Freddie Mercury. The film takes the story from Freddie's, I guess, teenage years or early 20s up through the final concert that we see. It wasn't the final concert for Queen, but mm-hmm. the final concert that, that we see there, uh, the Live Aid performance at Wembley that has been voted a couple times the greatest rock concert performance of all time. Uh, I think you were the first one to mention this movie to me. Is it because you love Queen or is it because you thought, oh, man, this looks really good? I think this uh, this kid really pulls off Freddie Mercury and, and you got excited about that. What, what was your interest in this movie? Um, just loving Queen with Freddie Mercury in particular. Um, th- this this movie made me appreciate the band more. Um, but Freddie was just so talented. And as far as a male singer, um, I think he may be one of the best that I'm aware of. Like I don't know, man. He th- there's not many there's not many who have picked up his mantle or have even come close since he's been gone. And, yeah, he's uh, always on the list of like greatest front men ever. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I didn't appreciate his flamboyance, but just his ability. Good grief. What a, what an amazing voice and talent. Yeah. So, you know, he's kind of classically considered to be a four octave voice. Mm. Um, I read that there was a group of musicians who studied him professionally and tried to listen to everything there there was recorded of him, both singing mm-hmm. and talking, mm-hmm. and that they could only find three octaves. Um, but, I mean, anybody who listens to that guy sing realizes whatever his final count is. This is one of the most powerful voices in popular music, right? And at least in the 2018 years since uh, Westerners have, have been talking seriously about music and composition and, and uh, sure. ability. Yeah, you go to uh, you can go on YouTube and people have stripped the music out of the songs. It's just his voice singing, and it's just incredible. I mean, like live performances, and he's not missing a. I mean, you you've been to concerts, yeah, and p- people butcher the, <laughs> they butcher their songs lots of times. Like, or they don't even try; they just play a track. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but he here he is doing live with all that pressure, and I mean, just nailing every note. It's just uh, he's just amazing. Yeah. Uh, you know, they mention in the in the movie that he, he tells the band that he eventually joins to form Queen. He says, I was born with additional molars in my mouth. And so more room in my mouth means I can I can hit higher notes or something. Or I've got broader vocal range or something like that. Yeah. And like his teeth are part of what you think of when you think about Freddie Mercury's physical appearance. Mm-hmm. He was born with additional super incisors. Okay. I didn't realize that. Yeah. I don't know if they were surgically removed or if they were left in, but yeah, he had more teeth than the average human does. Hmm. 
interesting little factoid. Uh, you mentioned that that this movie gave uh, gave you a new appreciation for the band. So we're thinking about Brian May and Roger Taylor and John Deacon, the other members of Queen. When you say that, right? Right, right. Well, that's one of the criticisms I've read about this movie online. Uh, John Deacon retired years ago, and so Queen has been on the road performing, but they've been they've been uh, playing with Adam Lambert as their lead singer. And I don't know who's playing bass for them, but it's basically Brian May and Roger Taylor who are keeping Queen alive as a performing act. Mm-hmm. And I've read people criticizing this movie online, saying that basically John Deacon's retired. He's not you know, he's not speaking into the projects the band's involved with anymore. And Freddie's dead. So, of course, a movie made about Queen that Brian May and Roger Taylor are speaking into is going to make Brian May and Roger Taylor look pretty good. Yeah. And they may be they may be casting aspersions on Freddie, who's not there to to defend himself and kind of making him the villain. Interesting. Gotcha. And that John Deacon, if you notice, Deacon is the guy who's just always the butt of the joke. Mm-hmm. And they kind of refer to him as a non-entity. There's that conflict scene where Freddie is going to go out and do a solo career. And the rest of the band sees that as him breaking up Queen. And, you know, Freddie snaps and he goes through and he says, like, uh, you know, Brian, you'd be a dentist if it weren't for me. And uh, Roger, you'd be an astrophysicist writing dissertation stuff that nobody wants to read. And Deacon, I can't I can't believe for I can't think for one moment what you would actually do if it weren't for us. Yeah. And again, I, I don't know if it's true or not, but if Deacon's not there to speak up for himself, obviously, Freddie's not going to be uh, Brian May and Roger Taylor would get to kind of craft the movie how they wanted to, right? They they would, but but Taylor's the drummer, right? Yeah. Did you notice that um I mean Mercury kept cracking jokes about his adultery. Like there's like three or four instances where Mercury makes like in front of his wife would make a snide comment. I, just, I, I did notice that. And I was actually talking to my wife. She and I watched this movie together and we we're talking about this theory that this is some kind of propaganda for Brian May and Roger Taylor. And uh, I think you're right. I think that I don't think these guys are trying to um, destroy Freddie Mercury's legacy or like pull him down off the pedestal. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just think this is probably whoever has creative input here is going to have certain biases, but mm-hmm. nobody takes more junk in this movie than Roger Taylor does for that song, I Love My Car. Yeah. They make fun of him, you know, relentlessly. And then you're right. There's several times where uh, Roger is highlighted as being adulterous. I was reading that the the song Queen, uh, one of their more famous songs, Fat Bottom Girls, he mm-hmm. wrote that. Uh, Roger wrote that from his own experience. And so he was apparently quite the philanderer. Oh, wow. Now, this movie kind of paints the other members of Queen as having traditional households and Freddie off by himself and feeling alienated from them because of that. And that may have been true to some degree. But yeah, Roger was apparently quite the notorious ladies man. Yeah, and Deacon, I mean, the song Another One Bites the Dust, he evidently did the riff and um, kind of helped. I don't know. I saw it as positive, them viewing, they're, they're, they kept calling themselves a family and how they needed each other. I mean, Mercury is telling them, hey, I need y'all and y'all need me. Yeah. Like, I don't know. I don't, I thought it was positive. I mean, there, if Mercury was there, there might've been things that were different or perspectives, but it, that would be concerning anything, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just another voice at the table. One other thing that's interesting about the band's involvement in this movie is that I, I read that they were insistent that this be a PG 13 movie. Hmm. Uh, which let me just tell you, kudos to them. Yeah. Even if you want that for just the purpose of like reinvigorating your record sales, 
I think you and I talked about this the last episode where we we mentioned wanting to see this movie. It's unavoidable uh, in in telling the story of Freddie Mercury's life. You can't do that without dealing with his sexuality. Mm -hmm. But you also can do that in a way that you're not just dragging people through a story that's only about his sexuality. Yeah. And we were hoping that this would be something that the story countenanced, but was just one of the components of the story they were telling. Yeah. And I'm just up front really appreciative that uh, I don't feel like they downplayed who Freddie was in his sexuality. There are so many scenes where two mustaches are kissing. (laughs) You know, I told Christy, like, I'm at the limit of watching mustaches rub up against each other. But nonetheless, uh, we don't have to see an orgy scene or, you know, uh, just gross sexual expression. And again, I'm just really thankful for that. They don't they don't go away from it, but they also don't revel in it. And I feel like it makes the movie much more accessible. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So, Jared, what uh, what are the conscience warning issues for for listeners who may consider watching this movie? Uh, listeners, there's uh, there's bad language. Um, there's some crude language. There's several homosexual kisses. Um, and also there's a scene where they're walking through. I believe it's a, a gay bar or it's a like gay a leather bar. Yeah. Leather. I said I don't even have a, a framework for that. Um, trying to understand that. Uh, but. There, so there's dudes dressed in leather and stuff, and but they're just walking through. So it, they're basically trying to tell you that he was promiscuous. He was involved in this scene, uh, um, and it was not was not good. And it ended up, you know, wrecking his life, taking him too early. Um, but also, Freddie Freddie is very. I, I think he he's awkward, but he's arguably feminine in this movie. Um, I think overtly so, more so than I saw him in real life. Mm. Um, I mean, do you do you think so, Jeff? Like I am I off base there? Or? That's really an interesting question. Um, we have we have spent uh, the last couple evenings just on YouTube watching you know the Queen performance at, at Wembley during Live Aid, mm-hmm. uh, their their music videos, and um, just you know there's a lot of YouTube stuff of their live performances. And we were <laughs> we were watching it this evening actually with our kids before bedtime, which is a great parenting move to get your kids ready for bedtime is to watch Queen mm-hmm. perform, um, but. My youngest son said, Dad, why does he act that way? And I said, what are you talking about? And he said, the the singer, why does he act the way he does? And he made this gesture that, you know, I, I don't know what the, the, the right way to describe it is, but sort of flamboyant and uh, flouncy. Yeah. And I said, you know, Freddie was a, a, a unique individual who loved to perform. And that seemed to satisfy my son. But he was picking up on something from the live performances. I don't know if he's more traditionally masculine in his mannerisms than this movie presents or not, Jared. I just haven't thought about that. But I'll, I'll tell you, having watched a ton of videos and concert clips, that guy was very fluid and very, um, you know, it, it's hard to find the right terms. He was charismatic. You know, you, you get sure. why he connected with audiences. But his his body movements are, <laughs> they're not traditionally masculine either. So, yeah. I mean, if you contrast him with, say, Bruce Springsteen, Springsteen is much more traditionally uh, masculine, right? And sort of leans into that Jersey tough guy role. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, compared to, to, to that image as a rock lead man, uh, Mercury is much more feminized. Okay. 
Um, Did so I make you mad? You, you mad that I don't know? No, no. I just I was just curious about. I don't. know. I thought they overemphasized the teeth too, but um, I mean it was a it was pronounced, but it man they really just centered in on it. I felt I felt those two things were were almost like a like those crazy like a crazy cartoon sketch, like you on the beach and they want to draw you right. Oh, so yeah. they they emphasize things that it's a caricature. Yeah, it's a caricature, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's interesting. I guess that might be true. But having said that, I thought that Rami Malek really was incredible in this movie. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he he did a great job. I felt like he was channeling uh, a different personality. I, I've only watched him in the first couple episodes of Mr. Robot, which is a television show he was in, mm-hmm. uh, which I think is still ongoing. We just gave up on it, but um, yeah, I did too. He he really uh, nails uh, a, a special performance that I'm guessing as a layman, uh, people who actually knew Freddie Mercury will be, will be pleased with. Yeah. All right. Anything else in summary uh, or conscience, Jared? Yeah, nothing in conscience, brother. Okay. Well, just a couple more film notes on this. Um, the movie heavily implies that uh, Freddie Mercury knew he had AIDS and was on his march towards death by the time that concert at Wembley took place for Live Aid. Mm-hmm. And from what I can tell, that's just not true at all. In fact, most people that I have read said that he would not have known unless he was just reading uh, the signs within his own body and connecting them to the AIDS epidemic that he would have not he would not have known that he had AIDS by the time they got to Live Aid. Hmm. Um, and, and they, they say he wasn't diagnosed officially to like late 86 or early 87. So it could be as much as two years before he knew. Hmm. I thought his last live performance was two years later. The thing I read was this sort of going out, um, concert where they, they finished by playing God Save the Queen. Mm-hmm. And he dressed up in this royal regalia, this golden robe and lifted this crown up in the air. And that was how he said bye to his fans. And then the other thing that this movie really says, um, that apparently is not true at all is that Queen had a breakup period before the Live Aid concert. Yeah. Was that not true? Yeah. And everything I've read says that's not true at all, that they never quit recording. Uh, and in fact, Taylor and May had recorded their own solo projects before Freddie did his. Oh, I wow. Like either May or Taylor was working on their second solo project by the time Freddie's solo project came around. Why did they do that then well, if they had input into it? That's one of the criticisms of this movie is that, that I'm reading online. One of the criticisms of this movie is that this is this is following the musical biography template a little too woodenly. Um, you know, this once in a lifetime generation talent comes on the scene. Uh, he meets his bandmates. They rocket to success. There's eventual conflict from superstardom that drives them apart. And they come back together for a triumphant return. Hmm. You know, we've seen that in a million different movies. And a lot of people are saying that that this movie just sticks to that, to the detriment of the actual material that's available in the historical record. Yeah, I don't understand that emphasis, man. Why don't they, people who are wanting to watch this movie, it's going to be because they're aware of the music, right? They're, I don't know. I just want to know what happened. I don't, I don't want them to follow some blueprint. Yeah. Well, here's the thing. If you're wanting to tell a feel good story and make people, um, love your movie and through loving your movie, reconnect with your music to get those mm-hmm. royalties reinvigorated. Now, again, I don't think this is a cash grab because Queen, I think the last thing I read is that Queen is still the best selling band in UK history. They outsold the Beatles. They outsold the Who, um, the Rolling Stones, everybody. That's crazy. Yeah. Well, I mean, you say it's crazy, but we don't mean that like it's it shouldn't be that way. It just speaks to how impressive their catalog is. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, but if you're trying to make a movie that, that is popular, popular, this is a good template to work from. 
Mm-hmm. And this movie has has a troubled history. It initially started out, um, Sasha Baron Cohen was going to play Freddie Mercury. He was the one kind of pushing for a Freddie Mercury biopic. Oh, wow. And I'm assuming if he'd have done it, we'd have had a much more gritty and uh, I don't want to say realistic, but a much more depraved. Yeah, depraved presentation of this uh, of this material. And the, uh, the director on this um, was fired at the very end. And another director was brought in to finish it. Um, the way it works, I guess, with the union is that only the original guy can get credited for directing this. But nonetheless, it, it was uh, apparently quite a, a troubled production. The, the director's Brian Singer, who um, I'm trying to think of some of the stuff that comes to the top of my head that he has done. He he did the X-Men movies and he okay. did Superman Returns. Um, he was like apparently in open conflict with the cast and maybe at one time threw some uh, production equipment at another person on the set. So they end up, again, firing him. Another director came in to finish it off. Um, All that to say, this movie has got some twisted roots, and it's not entirely clear who was driving the ship and for what purpose the entire time. Wow, man. That's crazy. Yep, it is. But I mean, I'll tell you this. As a guy who went to see this on a Saturday afternoon, I feel like it was a great use of two and a half hours of my life. Yeah. So whatever, I don't know, maybe it's just a testimony to the power of Mercury and Queen's talent and abilities that even this twisted thing can can be really compelling. Oh, yeah. I've been listening to Queen quite a bit ever since I watched this last Thursday. Like I've been, Oh, yeah. I've been turning it on like crazy. Me too, man. Me too. And I'm assuming that everybody who's getting royalties from Queen is very happy to have this movie. Because really, the best parts of this movie are when, uh, you know, the music is playing and we're seeing a concert or we're seeing um, them develop a new song that we're all like, oh, yeah, that's how this super mega hit that we're all fans of came to be. Um, when You know, I could watch a movie think of just this cast recreating queen performances and be really happy. Yeah. Um, so I guess that's all the introductory material I've got on this one. Do you want to uh, to jump into our analysis? Yeah, yeah. All right, man. So we look at movies according to their, uh, we evaluate them rather, according to how well they correspond to the story God is telling in the cosmos about his son, Jesus. And so we go through the phases of the story that is being told about Jesus, namely there's creation, fall, redemption, and glorification. And Jared, what do you think Bohemian Rhapsody says about the goodness of original creation? I think that uh, they argue in this movie that, well, it's set in the West, but people are supposed to do what they were born to do. So, um, you know, this is what the 70s, 80s, 90s, uh, well, but m- mainly the 70s and 80s. But um, but you're to do what you were born to do, what you were gifted to do, and whatever that may be, kind of follow your heart kind of mentality is the good of creation. Yeah. What's following this then? Uh, when people don't do that, when they don't use their talents, when they don't find happiness, whatever that may be, and when they don't use it for the good of others. Sure, absolutely. So we have a dark period for Freddie where he has um, he's fallen under the sway of this worm-tongued manager who has a crush on him, and it alienates Freddie from his true family, the band members, and uh, his the the first love of his life. And uh, yeah, yeah, that's that's fallen this year. So how does redemption take place? Uh, redemption happens when folks use their gifts for the good of others. That's pretty pretty generic on my part. Well, no, I mean, I kind of think this is a simple script. So when Freddie and the guys get back together and get their mojo together and do the thing they were created to do, that's the redemptive vision, you know? Oh, yeah. And then glorification? Uh, when people leave a legacy of talent, uh, morals, goodness, 
um, you know, Freddie makes that interesting statement where I'm I'm not going to be, what is it, right before the Live Aid concert, I'm not going to be their... I don't cautious, have time to be their poster boy, their cautionary tale, yeah. their figurehead. Yeah. I'm going to be what I was born to be, yeah. a performer or something something like that, like kind of leaving a legacy. Yeah. Um, and so I, I think that's the, the goal, not... I don't know, I guess making a dent in the world where it's still there when you're gone type thing. Yeah, letting people, giving people an opportunity to to enjoy and recognize your giftedness. Yeah. I mean, I guess in some ways, I don't want to get too far ahead, but in some ways that works for me. Um, Me too. You know, you you look at Freddie Mercury and it's just a tragedy. The guy made these choices that ended up taking him uh, into an early grave. He was 45 years old. And I mean, I mean, think about Elton John, who's still touring widely, who, Mm -hmm. who got started before Queen did. I don't know if Freddie could have kept up all of his vocal range, but if this is a guy who made healthier life choices, we may be enjoying his creative output today. Oh, yeah. Um, But because of his choices, he, uh, yeah, he just didn't get that opportunity. But it does, it is interesting to me that as a sub creator, uh, someone made in the image of a creative God, that what he created does give him a lasting significance, even if his, even if his life was cut short. Right. I don't know how long that'll stretch. Uh, Christian and I were just talking tonight, my wife and I, about how it's basically the Foo Fighters and maybe the Black Keys. And like they're the last high profile bands that are playing rock and roll music. Oh, wow. Yeah. So who knows? Who knows what Queen's legacy will be when Jackson, my oldest son, is having grandchildren, if that's the Lord's provision for him, let alone 100, 200 years. Uh, but still, we're, we're talking about Freddie Mercury years and years after he died. And mm-hmm. that's because he was a creator made in the image of a, of a greater creator. Yeah. Amen. Guys, we went through the broad strokes there. Um, we want to do some more specific analysis through five specific questions. And the first of those is, what's the story? Get it right. We hope we've done that in our summary and uh, those early notes and also that creation, fall, redemption, glorification breakdown. Um, the second question then is, where am I? Where am I at as a viewer in this world? And how do we see the style and shape of the imaginary world we enter into through this movie? So, Jared, where are you at in Bohemian Rhapsody? <clears throat> I guess I identify somewhat with Fred. Um, as far as um, in the end, you know, wanting to use your your gifts, like a, a feeling a responsibility to now I, I feel it for different reasons. But, you know, most rock and roll movies, at least you know, a lot of them, as far as when you like, I can't remember which one it was. Was it Mick Jagger that claimed to have like twenty five thousand sexual conquest, <laughs> sexual conquests? You know, like I mean, that, that makes me want to throw up. But um but anyway, that that so basically, rock and roll is more than sex, sex and drugs, right? I mean, that that's what this movie wants you to see, and um, I thought that was very helpful, very um, redemptive. Like they they had a at least they're portrayed as as the band feeling like this music, their giftedness is for the world, like it's for other people. It's not for them as individuals primarily, but they had they felt a responsibility to perform and not only that but to involve the people who are listening um i mean it, i thought that was very good the, i guess the responsibility is where i identify with freddie um oh that you've got some things that are that are yours as a gift and you have a stewardship to use them well to profit other people yeah at i mean least in part you think about being a preacher right i mean in our views of spiritual gifts and um you know the the calling the strange desire that the lord has given us to lead his people um all those things like we have he has given us these things so that we would use them for the good of the church um, and i realize this 
this is a different context. This is a secular movie, not arguing those things. But but I find it very similar. I think, um, you know, as a Christian, I resonate with that responsibility that he feels. That makes sense. Yeah, I, I do feel in some ways like the, the person in history that I am, uh, which is just a guy caught up in the in the wash of Freddie Mercury's talent and charisma and personality. You know, mm-hmm. even before I've seen this movie, um, I don't know who I would tell you the greatest rock and roll front man ever is Keith Richards, excuse me, Keith Richards. Um, Mick Jagger is up there. Uh, there. There's other people you could look at, but Freddie Mercury's on the short list. He's on the the Mount Rushmore for sure, right? So we're all kind oh, yeah. of at, at this point in Western history, we're all sort of aware that he was a one-time generational level talent, and this movie just recreates that uh, experience for the watcher. Oh yeah, uh, you can't help but root for these guys. Uh, I told Christy very early on in the movie, we just whispered each other, and I told her, this movie is hagiography. It doesn't want to say anything critical of. Freddie Mercury or any of the members of, of Queen, but I'm okay with that story being told too. You know, there's um there, there's a book uh, called Eusebius's Church History, which is the first church history book that Christians have. Uh, have you ever read that, Jared? No, I haven't. Okay, well, it's different. Eusebius certainly is a, a modern Western historian, but he is trying to tell the the story of the of the Christian faith in its earliest days after the life of the apostles. And he's writing uh, after Constantine comes to power and ends Roman persecution of Christianity. So when you're reading Eusebius, you eventually get to this point where he starts talking about Constantine, and he has nothing but the highest praise to offer to Constantine. Now, as a modern historian, I take a more critical eye to Constantine, even as as a professing Christian. Eusebius doesn't because Eusebius sees him as a deliverer. He's the guy who stopped Christians being killed. And so Eusebius is happy to just shower him with praise and to tell the best possible story he can about Constantine. Hmm. I don't think that's a well-rounded presentation of who Constantine is. But I also don't think that Eusebius's perspective should be stripped from the record because it's not comprehensive enough. Does that make sense? Yeah, sure. He he is one viewing angle on Constantine. And in this same way, if this represents Taylor and May's view of not just Freddie Mercury, but the, the events of the band known as Queen, I'm very happy to have them tell me that version of the story. It may not be the whole truth, but it's part of the truth. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, again, I was just glad to spend a couple hours letting them tell me this story. Yeah, I'm in. Um, what's good, true, and awesome here in, in this movie? We're to behold common grace. So what do you see that's good here? Well, in a, a similar vein as what I said earlier, it seems that the band, at least what they're trying to argue, is that it's it's more than sex, drugs, rock and roll, right? It, it's about using your talents for the good of others, the good of humanity. Um, but they made a ton of money doing it, too, you know, and I, I don't think that they're, that they're sad about that necessarily. Mm-hmm. For sure. Um, for sure. But the the biopic goes out of its way to say that musicians have a responsibility to use their talents for the good of others. And uh, I think that's morally praiseworthy, especially um, especially with often what we see. Right. Uh, So that that success and the fortune that comes with it is used for self-indulgence. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, especially that. I don't know that world. Like you think of how many amazing talents we've lost. I mean, you think of you think of uh, Hendrix. I mean, just this past couple of years, uh, Stone Temple Pilots, Scott Soundgarden, Wildland. yeah, yeah, and Scott uh, uh, Soundgarden's lead singer, Chris. Uh, 
Pine? No, it wasn't no, Pine. No, no, no. Chris Pine's the star. Why can I not remember Soundgarden's lead singer's name? I think uh, he's one of the best, too. That Chris Cornell. Chris Cornell. Yeah. He was amazing talent, man. My sure, goodness. In our lifetime, Kurt Cobain before him. Yeah. Tupac Shakur, right? Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. Smalls, yeah. So. Biggie Smalls. I mean, and it was directly related to their life choices as a result of celebrity. Yep, that's true. I mean, and again, that's that's Freddie Mercury's story, too. Yeah. Um, but this this movie, I, you know, maybe that is the benefit of having some older rock stars mm-hmm. involved in the telling of the story that they've come. They've lived long enough to realize the end of that kind of lifestyle and that that life should be about something bigger. Yeah. It, it made me want to wrestle with May a little bit, too, and wonder you know, just how faithful was this guy? You know, I mean, I know that that's probably not a good way to look at it, but, you know, the stereotype with these rockers is that they're all running around on their spouses. And so mm-hmm. this movie portrayed one of them um, as being unfaithful or two of them and then two of them as being faithful. And so right. I wonder if that's accurate, you know, um, because yeah, there, there is um, there's a book called like Freddie Mercury, the untold story that I thought I might track down and read. But you do come away being like, I really want to read a true journalistic biography of this band. Did a biography do a, do you know if they've got a queen band biopic, like the documentary, you know, like there, I can't remember if it was Lifetime or, but they've got a, a section called biography. It might be, it might be even VH1 or something. I don't know, but I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, I've told you I've been watching stuff on YouTube about queen. Yeah. I'm going to get on there and see what I can find along those lines. So yeah, they, that biography, I don't know if it's a biography channel or what it is, but they, everything I've watched on there has been worth seeing. Like yeah. uh, it's pretty interesting. It's similar to ESPN stuff that they do on sports. Okay. Like 30 for 30. Yeah. Stuff like that. Cool. Cool. Okay. Um, I think this movie has a lot to say about the goodness of creating, Mm -hmm. you know, I don't want to look past that too quickly. I think that in some ways that's also an idol here, that creativity and accomplishing success as a creator is ultimate meaning in life. I don't think that's true. I think that's too far. But this movie does recognize, again, as I mentioned earlier, that we're made in the image of someone who is creative. And it's a good thing for us to to model that in our own mm-hmm. lives. And so, I mean, I, I'm a guy sitting here very thankful that Queen came through and that I get to enjoy their music as a, as a listener. Mm-hmm. I also think this movie has a lot to say about family. Uh, I think there's a sense in which this movie wants us to see Mercury as rejecting his dad and the traditional lifestyle he represents. Yeah. Uh, and finding real family in the band and with... Um, you know, that young lady that he fell in love with that he called the love of his life, Mary Austin, which apparently was a very significant relationship for Mercury. Um, I think it says something about, you know, belonging and, and how you're going to know who you truly are in the context of the relationships you have with the people who love you the most. Mm-hmm. I think that's a good thing. Um, I also think that that this movie shows the way that, you know, young men, there's a time where they make maybe even a necessary break with their father to mm-hmm. launch out on their own. But then also that in when they make that break, they then eventually come back around and value the things that they, they saw represented in their childhood home. Right. Um, you know, you see dad come to accept Freddie as well. That, those are good things. I don't want to, I don't want to minimize the sinfulness that's in Freddie Mercury's life. Right. And we'll talk about that in a moment. And I, you know, just for fair accounting in, in the other members of Queen's life as well. But I also don't want to, I don't want to gloss over that there were really good things that even as a sinful rebel against his creator, Freddie Mercury and his bandmates, they modeled the image of God in some ways too. Oh yeah. Uh, anything else that we want to say, Hey, this is really good and true here. No, I think that's it, man. All right, so let's get into what's distorted, evil, and false. What are the idols here? How do we subvert them? 
Well, I think the open uh, homosexual sin. Um, I mean, I, I think that's probably the the most overt one in this movie, um, because it, it's it is portrayed as. I mean, there's this argument: I am who I am, type thing. I must be who I was born to be, type argument. But it was actually those types of arguments they ended up being his undoing. Um, you know, if he had remained faithful to his wife. Freddie Mercury may still be around, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, and that's sad. Like, I, he says he doesn't want to be anyone's cautionary tale, but that's exactly what he is. Sure. Um, yeah, unavoidably. Unavoidably, yeah. It I may mean, not it, be the only thing he is. Right. But it is part of his legacy. Yeah. That That's what's sad is that um, the legacy you leave, you can't just choose what kind of legacy you leave, right? You, I mean, you can. To a large degree, just not yeah. entirely. Yeah. If you're godly. I mean, if he, you know what I'm saying? Like, if he had done all these things or remain faithful to his wife. Um, I mean, there might have been even more and more talk of Freddie Mercury. You know, there may be have been more songs written and more. We, we may be enjoying him even more. I mean, it's just I don't know, man. It's just uh, some of that stuff aggravates me. The the flamboyance of it. They they want you. They didn't want to put portray. They wanted to tell the truth without portraying the homosexual lifestyle in a negative light. Yeah. Um, and, and it's funny. I've been reading reviews of this movie on on uh, more leftist websites. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that they really go after the film on is that it doesn't celebrate Mercury's homosexuality enough. Oh my. So they say that, you know, basically his his gay relationship with the guy who is from the record label, uh, Paul Printer, I think. Yeah. That that relationship is seen as predatory and leading Freddie into error and excess and eventually illness. Mm-hmm. Um, but that that does frustrate me because it's entirely possible that in objective reality, that relationship was toxic for Freddie Mercury. I don't know how to evaluate that, yeah. but I also can't take it off the table. Even if you are, are someone who sort of puts an equal sign between heterosexual relationships and homosexual relationships, I'm not that person. I think there's a moral difference between the two, but everybody has the category for a toxic relationship. Mm-hmm. If you go back and watch The Lord of the Rings, we've all seen Wormtongue uh, deceiving a grand king and, and causing him to grow fail and frail and corrupt through that. That may not have been what happened, but that story can't come off the table just because you want to celebrate everything associated with gay pride. Right. And, of course, by the time we get back around to Jim Hutton, uh, who is this later love of, of Freddie's life, well, they, they present that as much more holistic and healthy. Mm-hmm. Right? And so I think that, I mean... I'm just trying to answer the critics who are coming at this movie from a different angle. Don't let your bias cloud your eyes too much. Yeah. You need to be able to tell the stories of healthy relationships and unhealthy relationships, even from within your worldview that uh, basically the only thing that matters is who you're attracted to. It just frustrates me to see that everything has to be positive if it's connected again to gay pride. Yeah. Uh, when I think this movie doesn't, you know, it's not trying to, to be critical of Freddie Mercury's homosexuality, even if you and I would say, Clearly, the historical record indicates that his homosexual conduct led him to an early grave. Hey, dude, did uh, do you know if that if his relationship with the Jim Hutton was was truly monogamous until he died? Like, I, what? In, I, he had AIDS. Like. Well, I think Jim had HIV, I think. Uh, okay. Is, so there may have been some kind of sexual activity between them. Who knows? I don't care to explore that option. Right. The only thing I really know about that relationship is, A, they did stay together, and it was an important relationship to Freddie. I don't know if it was exclusive or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they didn't meet in the way the movie portrays it. Jim was a hairdresser, and they met at a nightclub, apparently. 
Okay. So, um, again, taking liberties there with the story. Gotcha. Um, yeah, I, I think the idol here is that there is a way to have it all. You know, if you, if you stay true, not only to who you are, but the people who love you the most and who you love the most, you can have whatever kind of sexual or relational uh, life you want to have in your romantic life, Mm -hmm. but then also have this family that is a place of belonging and security for you. Mm -hmm. And I do think that's an idol in this movie that that can't hold up to scrutiny. There are consequences to these kinds of choices. Mm -hmm. Um, And I I do want to say to this movie that, again, I'm not particularly upset that they told a a very pleasant version of Freddie Mercury's story. Uh, You know, another falsehood here is that uh, Freddie's... The, the consequences of Freddie's choices basically fell on his head and his head alone. You, know, you, you do have this sense that like the people who loved him were anguished by his loss, mm-hmm. but that Freddie led this beautiful, vibrant life. And then he died at an early age. But that is such a sanitized version of someone who dies from pneumonia-related complications because he has AIDS. Mm -hmm. He wouldn't, you know, uh, I don't wish this on Freddie. I hope it was as painless as possible. But that's an agonizing kind of death that would be full of misery and uh, weakness. And, you know, you and I have been enough long-term care rooms and seen people die. It's kind of Mm -hmm. humiliating when you die in those kind of circumstances. Well, I mean, it would have been suffocation, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just, you know, I read that there was a point, which well, I'm not surprised, but he's just too weak to even get out of bed. Yeah. So he lived for a while just having to, to stay confined. And think about a guy who's so used, well, I mean, who's so defined by movement. When we think of Freddie Mercury, we think about his movement as so much of who he sure. is. And the other thing about Freddie Mercury here is that if Freddie was active in the gay scene, not only did he catch AIDS from somebody, you would have to assume that he was someone who transmitted it to other people. Yeah. And that there's emotional carnage that comes not just from his sexual promiscuity, but Brian or Rogers or whoever else as well. That, you know, humans can't engage in sexual activity without destroying emotional connectivity and doing real damage to the to the human person, either themselves, their partner, or both. Yeah. This movie just pushes all that stuff to the side and says, well, we're going to focus on Mary Austin, Brian May, Roger Taylor, John Deacon, and Jim Hutton, and that's all that matters. But in, in, in any real-world situation where these kind of choices are being made, people are going to be devastated. Yeah, good call. I think Mary was a little devastated. They kind of portrayed her that way, at least at the beginning. Yeah, I, I would. I'd be curious. I mean, I have no right to her privacy. You know what I mean? Sure. But I would love uh, to read if she of her own volition said, let me just tell you exactly what I think. I'd love to read that. I'd heard that he left a lot of money to her. Like he I, did. I, he left household, uh, a lot of his financial uh, resources he left to her. I mean, I think he really did consider her the love of his life yeah. and his only true friend. Wow. That's so sad. I can't believe that's I sad. I know. When I say his only true friend, I, I don't want to disparage that he had meaningful relationships. I just think that's the language he used. That I think it's in this movie when he tells uh, that guy, who uh, Paul, who has a crush on him, nobody's going to know me the way that Mary does. Yeah. I think that's probably, you know, in a movie that has plenty of inaccuracies, I think that that's pretty accurate. Mm. And that's sad. Yeah. I mean, isn't that the thing that you're just left with as a Christian coming out of this? Um, yeah. Uh, Freddie's dad really was Zoroastrian, and he was buried in a Zoroastrian cer- uh, ceremony. Um, it just, you know, you look at that and you go, according to what we know, 
Freddie Mercury died and went into an eternity marked only by the judgment of God. Yeah. And it's just it's just a sad reality because as a you know fellow human, you recognize the goodness of God's creative work and who Freddie was. Mm-hmm. You see that image of God in him, and you want him to enjoy uh, good things after after his death. It just leaves you with a, I mean, it leaves you one with a sadness for him, but then two, it's a reminder about the serious consequences of rebellion against your Creator. It takes even good things and ruins them. Yeah. I kept thinking that throughout the movie, well, especially towards the end, that man, this guy needed the church. He didn't need a band, you know. Yeah. Um, I'm with you. If again, if this movie is accurate, Freddie wanted somebody to tell him who he was, and he wanted a place to belong. Yeah, and that's exactly what I was telling Christy. Like, you just wish that he could have found his identity in Christ. Yeah, and and belonged to his kingdom because really. Nothing's off the table if you do that. Nothing, uh, nothing that leads to joy is off the table. Mm-hmm. It's just a shame, man. It's heartbreaking. You, know, you think about some of the people that I've enjoyed musically and seen like the brilliance in as musicians. Most we've just talked about some of them: Tupac Shakur, uh, John Lennon, Freddie Mercury, and the the best data we have says eternity has not went well for them. It's just crushing when when you feel like. I mean, they lived in a country and an age where the gospel was so close at hand. Yeah, it's like I think of Tupac, for example. Um, I can't remember where I heard it, man. And but uh, I want to say that it, that uh, Holyfield witnessed to Tupac. Well, MC Hammer said he did too, and there was some evidence that that Tupac be- became involved with some kind of evangelical church towards the end of his life. Really? Yeah. But I've heard I've heard that narrative. I've heard countering narratives too. It's just hard to know the. It's just hard to know what the truth is. Now, here's the thing. If Tupac was converted late in life, the grace of Christ is sufficient for that. Right. There's no like time stamp on when you have to surrender to Christ and enjoy his benefits. But if you just look at the general tenor of his life and what's clearly known from his own production, yeah, that's what it doesn't look good for him is all I'm saying there. But boy, right. would, I, would I be delighted to find in some extravagant act of God's grace that all these people we're talking about mm-hmm. uh, were enjoying eternity before Christ's face uh, as adopted members of his household, I would be delighted by that. I just don't mm-hmm. have any, I don't have good reason to suspect that's the case. Right. Right. Yeah. Th- this movie, man, it's, um, I mean, he needed, he needed eternal family. He needed, you know, he needed not to be who he was. Well, I mean, he, I say he needed to be who God made him to be. And that was, um, an image bearer, but ultimately for the purpose of, you know, he needed to repent and believe in Christ. Like you said, he needed to get his identity in Christ alone and to enjoy being part of God's eternal family. Um, yeah, I, I preached this morning, uh, Galatians chapter 2, 17 through 21. And if that doesn't ring a bell for anyone listening, it, the heart of it is Paul saying that he was crucified with Christ and he remains alive. And so it's not him who lives, but Christ who lives in him. And mm-hmm. that he lives his life now uh, for the Son of God, who loved him and gave himself for Paul. And uh, I quoted Kevin DeYoung, who says that you know, the secret of Christian living is to be who you are, which is hard to say in a culture that, that says that like whoever you sense yourself to be, just live in light of that. Mm-hmm. But what DeYoung says is the important difference is that God says, be who you are in Christ not in your original nature. Be who you are through grace, not who you are through your nature. Mm. And I think he's getting at something good there, that my identity is in Christ, and I should strive to live out who I am in Christ. Yeah, That's the road to life. But if you strive to live out who you are just by your fallen nature, well, that's a quick road to an early grave. And Freddie is sadly a, a powerful illustration of that truth. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I mean, maybe we've got into some of this, but our last question, Jerry, just how does the gospel apply? So how yeah, does think, it apply in Bohemian Rhapsody? I, I think it's already what we've said. Um, identity in Christ. Um, I mean, I think you just, I think you just said it, man. It, it comes, you know, to my mind that, that Piper phrase, you know, one of his most powerful sermons ever, one of his best books and don't waste your life. Mm-hmm. Don't waste your life living for the indulgence of your appetites. Don't waste your life living even for the the thrill of performing well for other people with these talents you have. You, you really can have, in some sense, it all by living your life for the glory of Christ and using those talents in His name for the good of other people. Just don't waste that opportunity because you just get one. Yeah. And that, you know, you look at Freddie Mercury and you think, look at what was, right? Yeah. But, man, you also can't help but think what could have been. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely, man. Absolutely. It, it is it is a cautionary tale. I mean, that, hey, the wages of sin remains death. Yeah, absolutely. <sighs> yeah. It's a somber note, man. Oh yeah. Yeah, but listener, you can I mean, you know, we I mean if our hearers hearing this, you can I mean, trust in Christ. Yeah. Trust in Christ. Enjoy his forgiveness. Enjoy his grace. You can have I mean Freddie's I mean, based on this movie, it was his happiness was based on these arbitrary things, these things that he was after. And um, you know, he he was dealing with stress by drinking and drugs and um promiscuity. Promiscuity and, and I mean all that he longed for, Christ can provide and he can provide you as well. And I mean that, that's the thing. It's um and, and in much more satisfying fashion. Absolutely. Like, all the things you're trying to have through those counterfeits are actually available in undiluted quantity in Christ. Yeah, absolutely. And it's uh it's sobering to watch somebody's life like that, you know? Yeah. Um I mean it does serve as a cautionary tale for me, for all of us who like you say, live for your live for your appetite. Um I'm reminded of that song, well it was a poem that Ann Griffiths wrote. Um Sovereign Grace took it and made it a hymn, but it starts out says, Gladly would I leave behind me all the um treasures, know all the pleasures I have known to pursue surpassing treasures at the throne of God the Son. And um, yeah, there's you can leave all this behind and enjoy Christ forevermore. And that's the goal, right? It's it's not to make music, but it's to make it's to enjoy Christ through making music, you know? Um, or whatever whatever he's called you to do vocationally, raising right. children, making shoes, whatever it whatever it is. Yeah, preaching or being a husband, being a father, digging ditches. You know, yeah. whatever it is, yeah, absolutely. But um, uh, I think that's it. I think it's all I got, buddy. All right, man. Well, we'll put a bow on this one, listener. Thanks for listening along uh, in a very extended edition of the Pop Culture Quorum Dale podcast. We'd love to hear your thoughts. Uh, specifically, you can reach out to us on social media. We're on most platforms at PCCD Pod. Uh, but we would give you a, a special invitation to join us in our Facebook group, the Pop Culture Quorum Dale Podcast Perpetual After Party. You can find that link to on our Facebook page. There's a blue button at the top just under the banner that says visit group. Join in there. Let us know what we got wrong about Creeped Out. Uh, Let us know what you thought about Bohemian Rhapsody, the life of Freddie Mercury, the output of the band Queen, any of that stuff. We would love to hear from you. Um, We would love to to hear from you on pretty much any other subject too. Jared, where can they they find your writings? Uh, You can find me on Twitter at Jared H. Moore and on Facebook at All Truth is God's Truth. I've got a website that is All Truth is God's Truth and uh, I've got a uh, I've got another podcast that is all truth is God's truth as well. Check that out, and you can find Jeff and I at pathios.com forward slash blogs forward slash pop culture quorum Dale. Jeff has actually written two great pieces um, in the past week or so, and uh, there's a couple of them. Check them out; they're really good. They're worth worth diving into. 
Well, thanks, Jared. I appreciate that. Um, guys, we, we would love to hear from you. If you have time and are willing to do so, we would appreciate you dropping by iTunes or wherever you get your podcast, leaving us a five-star review or whatever whatever uh, star rating you can give us in honesty. That helps us know how to structure the show uh, to meet uh, the needs of you guys that are audience and to um, make this project something that, that we're all enjoying participating in. So we would appreciate that if, if you could do that for us. Jared, do you have any inclination about what we're going to watch for the next episode? I want to watch that movie the haunting of hannah grace but i don't know if we'll be able to to cover it for this show yeah okay so we'll put that in the hopper i'm also going to throw in the one i was telling you about earlier it's a netflix original it's an indonesian movie it's apparently very violent and bloody but it's an action movie called the night comes for us Mm -hmm. i think it's a little bit out you know on the borders of what we'll find acceptable but we can at least consider it and see if it's something we want to cover okay that sounds good man hey word to our listeners as well jared is a maniac who loves christmas movies and I despise those, but we are slowly coming up on Christmas movie season as much as I dread it and don't want it to happen. So I'm assuming you'll hear some Christmas movies here on the Pop Culture Quorum Dale podcast. And if there are any in particular you want to suggest to us, maybe you think, hey, if you'll watch this movie, Jeff, it'll it'll cure you of your hatred of Christmas movies. <laughs> I'd love to be cured of that. So please get at us and suggest some, some Christmas movies for us to look at in the coming months. That is awesome, man. I, I hadn't even thought about Christmas being this close. Yes, let's do Christmas movies the whole month of December. Oh my gosh. I'm, I'll be, you, you do the podcast. I'll be vomiting in a trash can. <laughs> All right. Well, guys, thanks for listening to this episode. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we did, and we will talk to you next time on the Pop Culture Cornell Podcast. 